One of the lies that impacts each person every day is the one that you must personally make sure that those who hurt you must pay for what they have done. It includes the idea that if you do not make them pay, they're going to get by with their sin. Part of that lie may include hating that one or that you must review what they have done every day to make sure that that is not forgotten. You know, part of the consequences of that lie is that you've got to give large portions of your resources to guard that person to make sure they don't get to have a good time. We come to our text this morning. We're reminded that we do not have to be bruised by bitterness anymore. Last week, we began looking at the wonderful change that takes place when a person comes under new management. We looked at the analogy of what happens when a new restaurant is started, it, when it changes hands. You know, the problems of the past are no longer the problems of the current management. Now, sometimes people will drive by, they see the building, and they say, whoa, I've been to that place before. I know what that's like. That's why they put these great big signs out under new management. Sometimes they even change the name of the building. But why do they do that? Because they want you to know that the treatment you receive from that owner and those employees is not going to be the same when you walk in the door anymore. The expectations of the new owner for those employees is totally different. They're going to be treated differently. And as they begin to take on the goals and the ideas of that new owner, they find themselves happy and cheerful and no longer being the cross kind of employees that you met before when you walked in. The building may look the same, but what's on the inside is different. When you receive God's gift of eternal life, you become a new person. The outside looks the same, but the new person has power and abilities that your old person never had. Therefore, Scripture declares, if anyone is in Christ, they become a new person, a new creature. We read in Scripture, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 Jesus said, when he was reading in the synagogue, he said, I have come to set at liberty those who are bruised. The word bruised there means oppressed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And James chapter 1, verse 25 says, But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, perfect law of liberty, the scripture, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of that work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. There is blessing for those who spend time and do the perfect law of liberty, that do God's word. Today we've met to worship an incredible God. We've come to worship the one who loves us and gave himself for us. As a person who is now in Christ, you are a free person. You have new resources. You have new management. 
You have new expectations. You have new power. You are a new creation. And that changes the way you can live today. Now, I tell you all of that because if you got into this text and you had the old mindset, you would just walk out heavily burdened this morning and you would say, well, obviously now it's just one more weight you've put on my shoulders. But that's not the truth. The case is God has now made you, if you look at verse 24 in chapter 4, what does it say? It tells us you were now created in righteousness and true holiness. You're a different person if you've received Christ as your Savior. That opens all these new resources, and with these new resources, now when he says something, it has a whole new connotation because you have a new master. Your old master was a hard slave driver. He was a liar, and he was a destroyer. But that's not who you serve now. So this morning, we come to our text... And we are looking specifically at freedom from the lie of bitterness. You don't have to be bruised by bitterness anymore. Let's look at our text together, beginning at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I want you to notice, here is a command. Literally, he's saying, let every kind of bitterness and its accomplices be put away from you. Don't wear the old prison clothes or live by prison rules any longer. When I would visit, and I emphasize visit, all right, so... Just keep that under control. When I would visit the county or, or city jails, everyone always looked the same. They had the same shirt. They had the same pants. They had the same handcuffs. They had the same leg irons. They had the same orange sandals that they would wear. And Paul uses this analogy by saying, you don't have to wear your old master's jail clothes any longer. You have been liberated, and you don't have to wear those clothes anymore. As you go out into the community, you don't have to go around in the leg irons and in the handcuffs. You don't have to go around in the orange outfit. You don't have to wear the orange sandals anymore. You see, your old master, the old jailkeeper, the devil, told you this is the only way you can live. This is the only way you can survive. He told you to lie because you can't survive in our society if you don't withhold the truth, if you don't mislead people. You'll never get the deal. You'll never get the job if you really present yourself for what you are. Since you've put on the new man, he says, put off concerning the old master. Put off concerning the old clothing. You have been pardoned. You've been justified. Now, this whole text takes on a whole new complexion now. Now, this isn't... <clears throat> another burden that they put on me at church. Now it is a weight that's been lifted. I don't have to live that way anymore. Now he says, this is the new way to live. These are the new clothes that you get to wear. If we want, 
we can let go of all these sinful responses. And we know that because that's what God commands us to do. And he's not a mean God. He's not an unkind God. He's not trying to lay a burden on you. He says, you come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. He said, you take my guidelines upon you and you'll learn a whole new way of living. These can be put away from each of us because of what God has done in our hearts. Today, if you have come and you're religious, maybe you go to church regularly, maybe you have been someone who has always gone to church or you've always tried to be good, this would be a very heavy weight today. You would say, I don't know how to do this. I've tried. I don't want to live this way, but I'm stuck this way. Because what I'm going to describe is someone who has received Christ as their Savior. Someone who now has a new manager, under new management, that God has created you now in righteousness and true holiness. So today, if you find your heart saying, that's what I wish I could have, you can have that, but it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't try to do this stuff. Recognize these are things he gives you and tells you you can be different. So he's been leading us through this. He says sinful speech, sinful responses, stealing. These are all things you no longer have to do to survive. Those are things that make you angry. Those are things that make you bitter. Those are things that create hostility in your environment. And God says, oh, no, all that can be released. So let's look at bitterness and its binding friends in verse 31. Interestingly enough, you know how he begins? He says, let all bitterness. Why didn't he just say let bitterness? Literally, he's saying, let all kinds of bitterness. There are all kinds of bitterness that are out there this morning. And he's been talking about even among believers. And you know this morning, it's possible that many of us have walked in with bitterness. Now, it's your own kind of bitterness because it's your circumstances. I've got my own. And we would all say, well, you ought to let go of that, but you don't know. You don't understand my circumstances. I can't let go of mine because of, and there, therefore, Paul begins by saying, let all bitterness, let all kinds of bitterness, everything that belongs to the class of bitterness this morning, He's saying there is no legitimate kind of bitterness that we get to keep, that you want to keep. We're tempted to think that our circumstances are the exception. That's a lie, and that lie keeps us defeated. So what is bitterness? The word bitterness is derived from a word that is used of a pointed or a sharp arrow something that's painful. The Bible Themes Dictionary defines bitterness as a feeling of resentment caused by perceived unfairness in suffering or by adverse circumstances. I didn't deserve that. 
That person has no right to speak to me that way, has no right to treat me that way. That person has no right to take that from me. That person has no right to embarrass me. That person has, and you can go on, and it's a perceived unfairness that's caused us to suffer or caused us to have adverse circumstances. And the hard thing about things that make us bitter are they are real. They hurt us. And they're usually things that you can never turn back and do over again. You can't say, okay, let's just try this again and make it go away. We've had things happen in our family. There is no way to turn back the clock. Our lives will never be like they were before. And many of you can say, amen, brother. I know exactly what that's like. I have felt that. I have experienced that. If you only knew what happened to me, to my spouse, to my children, my case is different. I have to be bitter. It's only right that I be bitter. It would be wrong for me not to be bitter. How could I not be bitter? So let's look at bad bitterness for just a moment. I thought this was interesting. Aristotle spoke of bitterness as the resentful spirit which refuses reconciliation. The apostle says that all of this must go, every trace of it, every kind of it. This morning we are confronted with something that is very contrary to what our old mind always thought. And that is... No bitterness is good bitterness. There is no good bitterness out there. Bitterness makes you be on the alert 24-7. It's what comes up in conversation. It's what dominates your thinking. And you need to let every kind of that bitterness go away. Now, you begin, he begins by saying, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. Now, these are the terrible twins, wrath and anger. These two are very much alike. Now, they're not identical twins, but they are twins. They're two streets that lead to the same location, anger and wrath. Wrath is thumos, and anger was the, was the term orge. And they're very similar, with the distinction being wrath has the idea of quickly boiling up, and anger is something that is deep down and slowly starts building up. These twins end up at the same location with a powerful release of emotion. Timing is the main difference in these two words. Wrath can be like Old Faithful which blows up pretty regularly, versus anger, which is like Mount St. Helens, which was slow and built up. One is regular and gets the pressure off. The other is huge and catastrophic. But whether it happens often or is stored up, the damage is just as real. To the person who is bitter and is wrathful is, is this which, it comes from the idea of to have the red face or hot breath, and it's someone who just explodes 
All of a sudden, just things are coming up and all, they, they just get, have a hot temper and they just explode. He says, no. He said, that's old management. That's old. That's the old way. You don't have to do that anymore. You say, yeah, but, but it feels so good. Well, the cleanup is really hard. When you come along and now you've got to clean up all this damage, all the carnage that's taken place. You say, oh no, I don't, you don't see me doing that. In fact, you won't even notice that I'm so angry on the inside. But the problem is, is that it is slowly building and it's going to have the same reaction. Mount St. Helens erupted May 18th, 1980. The St. Helens eruption had an eruption volume that rose 80,000 feet in the air. Airliners fly at 40. This is twice the height of airline flights. It would destroy the engines of airliners trying to fly in that, in that area because of how corrosive it was. You say, yeah, but I've kept it quiet for so long. The end result is going to be the same, and it all stemmed from this bitterness. Now, what are the sinful siblings of the terrible twins? Look at the next two words. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. So now we come to the sinful siblings, clamor and evil speaking. There's an eruption. The result of both is ultimately the same. It's going to be shouting and abusive speech. It's going to be out of control talking. You see, when that's happening, what you need to realize is that's the old management. That's what God commands us to get rid of because it's harmful, it's corrosive, it's going to hurt you. Clamor has the idea of speech fighting that leads to physical fighting. And evil speaking comes from the word blasphemy. You say, well, I don't ever blaspheme against God. Abusive words against God or against God's creation. Isn't it interesting that Paul would talk about getting rid of evil speaking because of what it really is? When we attack each other, who are we really attacking? We're also attacking the creator of that one. And then we're double created. We were made in God's image, but then God created us unto holiness unto righteousness and true holiness when we got saved and when we attack each other and we say unkind things about each other because of something that someone has done which then starts boiling up on the inside and either we become explosive or we have this slow burn that's going on either way he says beware that's not what the new management wants out of you that's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt everyone around you Therefore, he says, get rid of the sinful siblings, clamor, and evil speaking. Bitterness deals with attitude. The twins, anger and wrath, deal with disposition. What kind of a disposition do we have? And the sinful siblings, shouting and abuse, refer to the manner of speech that finally comes out. You say, yeah, but there's one more in the family there, Pastor. That's exactly right. Look at the end of verse 31. 
with all malice. And we have malignant malice here. Malignant malice is something that will begin to spread. He says every kind of malice, this vicious disposition, everything becomes connected with a negative purpose. Because what's happened to us and why this is so important is because what happens is when we get bitter, we don't recognize it, but we attach everything that happens is tainted by our bitterness. And so now we have this disposition of negativity toward everything that's going on. It impacts our family. It impacts our children. It impacts our spouse. It impacts our co-workers. Everything is there. And Satan loves that because he's just grinding everybody. And God says, oh, no. If you've received Christ, he says, get rid of those prison garments. You don't have to act this way anymore. You don't have to talk this way. You don't have to think this way. Put away all ill will. Each of these is discarded in the life of a new man who is created in righteousness and true holiness. See, Satan doesn't want us to think that way. He doesn't want us to talk that way. He doesn't want us to recognize what we are in Christ. We become new. Now let's go to verse 32 and notice three beautiful sisters. We had the sugly isters earlier. Now we've got the beautiful sisters, all right? Now look at verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. What are the three sisters? Kindness, compassion, and graciousness. A literal rendering of the word um, uh, be kind has the idea of be becoming to each other kindness. This describes for us progressive sanctification. When we got saved, we were immediately justified, but we would all say there were things in our lives that didn't look like Jesus Christ. Every day, those things are being changed as we allow the Holy Spirit to have control in our lives. Because we know what this Holy Spirit looks like. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, under control. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. When He's in control, that's what we look like. And when he's not in control, that's not what we look like. And it's a great strain for us to keep things together. So the literal rendering here of be becoming to one another kindness, becoming the embodiment of kindness and compassion is a process that only takes place through the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. That was the reason why Brother Tom began with verse 30 where he said, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. And he's sealed in you. That means you don't lose him. He is in you. But notice what else it says. You can grieve him. You know, by the things that I say, I could grieve my wife. Sometimes I'll say something, 
And I can tell as soon as it came out of my mouth, that was the wrong thing to say. Why? Because it hurt her. Now, you guys have known me for a couple months. My sweet wife has stuck with me for over 30 years. You say, she is amazing. She is. She moved with me from what today is 60 degree temperatures <laughs> to who knows. And we love it together. We're just amazed every morning when we wake up and realize we get to spend another day together. You see, she stuck with me. But that doesn't mean that every day goes great. You see, I have a choice. I can make her happy or I can grieve her. You know, the Holy Spirit is stuck with me. I can either make him happy or I can grieve him. Therefore, he says, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and all ill will because every one of those grieves the Holy Spirit. It makes him unhappy. It makes me unhappy. I don't get to enjoy the things that I could be enjoying. He doesn't get to enjoy the things he would be enjoying in this fun relationship that God designed us to have. And Satan's going, oh, no, you got to be bitter. And don't you let them do that to you. You give them a piece of your mind. Even if you're inside your car and they can't hear you, you make sure they know you've had it with them. Is that really what God designed the new person to be like? You say, I, th I thought it was. No, that's why he wrote it down in the scriptures for us. And the Holy Spirit says, be becoming the picture of kindness and compassion to all that are around you. And then the word tender-hearted. I thought this was interesting. It has the idea of being gracious. You see, it's more than just um, it's more than just being forgiving. That's the word I was looking for there. The word here, be forgiving, is the idea of being gracious. You see, now we get to reflect graciousness to each other, demonstrating grace. Now, forgiveness is a part of grace, but grace goes beyond forgiveness. The word here literally has the idea of charis, which is grace, is the word tenderhearted here. It's a good translation, but it is not as full as what God intended for us to hear here. You see, while we were dead, God was gracious to us. Chapter 2, we read this together. For by grace are ye saved. God's graciousness. While we were dead, remember the whole text in chapter 2, he says, God had to make you alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was nothing good you could bring to God because you were dead. How many kind things can a dead person do for somebody? Have you ever been to maybe a funeral home? 
where, you know, things are so busy and someone over here needs something where the person jumps out of the coffin, runs over, gets them something, runs back, gets back in the, in the coffin again. You'd go, I don't think so. Why? Because the person is dead. And we think we're going to bring something to God and bring something and say, God, how about if I get you a cup of coffee now? Will you give me salvation? God, can I do this for you now? Will you give me this? How about God, if I, if I become this, will you let me? And he says, do I need to remind you again? And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins had God made alive. And it's by grace God doing for us what we could not do because we were dead. By grace, you're saved. Now we come to chapter 4, and this makes so much more sense in the picture. He says, be kind, be tenderhearted, be gracious in the same way that God was gracious to you. Being gracious reflects the very thing God did for us. This reflects a new ability that God did in our lives when we were created in righteousness and true holiness. And the expectation is beyond the violator's ability to meet our personal expectation. It's something impossible without God, but totally possible with the Holy Spirit. So let's think about kindness for a moment. Where he says... Be kind one to another. It is something that is free to give now rather than to take. Remember, he says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands so that he can give. You see, as a believer, now instead of being selfish, now instead of having to worry about taking care of ourselves, I have a heavenly father who takes care of me. I'm free to give. You never got a chance to meet our golden retriever. She died the day before we moved here. And Honey was a fascinating study in emotions. Golden retriever. Now, I don't recommend naming your dog Honey because when she gets less loose in the neighborhood and you're out the door yelling, Honey! <laughs> Neighbors are really kind of curious. Are they having marital problems again over at the Felber household, okay? <laughs> So I didn't think that went through very well when we named our dog. But honey, we would have other animals that would, we would hit house sit or whatever for, and they would come in and they would gobble her food. And she would just sit back and she would wait. Because she knew whenever that little whatever it was finished eating all of her food up, she knew I was going to put more food in that bowl. I never saw her growl or snap. She was just patient. Because she knew. Sometimes little kids would step on her tail and she would kind of pull her tail out from underneath their feet. And she just would kind of wander off. But she didn't growl or snap. Why was that? Because she was confident we were going to take care of her. And if we didn't, she assumed it was an oversight on our part. Now... I failed my dog miserably sometimes. How can we be kind? Because we have a heavenly father who will look after us. He is kind. 
You see, we are free to give rather than take. We are now God-empowered. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There's no laws against that. You can, you can be meek all you want. You can be kind all you want. You can be gentle all you want. You can be joyful all you want. I'm free to serve now rather than demand. I really wrestled with this text where he said, let all bitterness be put away from you because it's, it's in a passive kind of a voice. And, and I've had some conversations with my kids who are much more fluent in Greek than what I am. And we were discussing, is this passive or is this active? And the best thing I can come up with, I mean, Colossians, it's a command, you do this. But here he says, let this be done. And the whole point is, is that the Holy Spirit helps us. This is not something you have to muster up on your own. This is something that you can do. You can be kind. You can be tenderhearted. The idea of being compassionate. When we begin to be able to look at the people who hurt us and understand where they're coming from. Not easy. Then he says, this idea of forgiving, being gracious. Let me just briefly say, the reason why I've chosen that word is because gracious is not only the normal meaning of the word, but it's the most suited to the context here. Graciousness is the opposite of bitterness, of wrath, of anger, of shouting and abusive speech. You find someone who's gracious Usually, even when we deserve to have some tongue lashing, they come up with something that is like, wow, how'd you come up with that? How did you come up so nice out of that? It describes how we are kind and compassionate when we talk about being gracious. And it gives the broader meaning of forgiveness. To be gracious to one another is the natural idea here. So let's look and think for a moment. So how do you do this? Why, do, why are we bitter? What lie have we believed? So let's just do a brief bitter quiz here. Bitter versus belief. Can I trust God to do the right thing with my hurts? Or do I need to make sure that I'm handling it to make sure it gets done right? You know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Can I really trust God to, to deal with my hurts the right way? I've been hurt. And I have been hurt. And you've been hurt. You've really been hurt. Can I really trust God to do it right? You know, how many things in our lives are we just trusting God to do it right? He promised that he would give me salvation. I'm just trusting God to do it right. What happens to babies when they die? You know, the greatest argument that, that causes me to have confidence when a baby dies that they're okay is based on God's character, not on a verse in the Scripture. God's going to do it right. God's a good God. Second question in this quiz. 
First one was, can I trust God to do the right thing with my hurt? Second thing, can I trust God's command to be right? When God says, put this away from you, did God make a good command or was God giving a bad command? Can I really trust God that his commands are good? Third question, can I trust God to use my hurt for good? Now, that does not excuse what they did to me. That does not excuse what they did to you. What they did was wrong. But do I believe that my God can still use that for good? You know how Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, um, it's verses 6 and 7, where he says, After you suffer a while, make you mature. Do you know... God can use that person that I will never see again who cuts me off in traffic for my good. He's changing me. God can use that spouse. God can use that employer. God can use that person. God can even use that Christian who did us wrong for my good. Do we really believe Romans 8? Now, so often it's glibly quoted. We know that all things work together for good. But verse 29 is really important. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What God is using those difficult things in our life is to make me more like Jesus Christ. Do I really believe that my God is big enough to use bad things to make me more like Jesus? Well, if that's the case, then that's a good thing, isn't it? Fourth question on the quiz. Can I trust God knowing that he was compassionate to me and therefore compassion is the best response? Now, I'm really thankful God was compassionate with me. I'm really thankful God was kind with me. I'm really thankful God was gracious to me. If that's what God is like, can I really trust what God said so that I could be, I could mirror that kind of an attitude? You see, what you believe impacts how you will behave, and how you, be, and how you behave reveals what you really believe or no at least. You see, that's why God gave us his word, because you might say, I didn't know that. God understood that, and that's why he gives it to us in his word. Can I really let God handle my hurts for me? Now, some of you right now, you are already way ahead of me, You've gone through this checklist and you're going, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, and I know where this goes and I cannot stomach that because I don't think that ends up there. And that is this. You would say, if I forgive, that means then I have to pretend that nothing happens and all of a sudden now everything, I've got to get along with that person as if nothing happened. Mm, notice the end of verse 32. 
even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, did that immediately reconcile everyone to him? Hmm? No. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that God through Christ was reconciled to us, and then he says, and he's given me the ministry of reconciliation, and he says, you be reconciled to God. What do we need to be reconciled to God? God did everything for us, but we still have a choice, don't we? God doesn't force us. We have to choose to say, I was wrong. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. When you are kind and you are tenderhearted and you are gracious by forgiving and by the way you keep reaching out and you keep trying to be reconciled, that does not reconcile the situation. It doesn't mean you're going to be going out for coffee every day because this person is still in the wrong and they have to be reconciled. It's possible today. Some of you would say, all right, I will do this. I'm going to let my bitterness go. I'm going to let my, my anger and my wrath go. I'm going to let my abusive speech go. I'm going to let all of these things go. Will that fix my problem? Maybe not. Because that person still has a choice to make. Bruised by bitterness. The Ten Boom family were members of the Dutch Reformed Church, which protested Nazi persecution of the Jews. After World War II began, members of the Ten Boom family became involved in the resistance efforts. Two nephews worked in resistance cells. Various family members sheltered young men from the Nazis. Corey Ten Boom became directly involved with these efforts along with her father and sister Betsy. They decided they would hide Jews in their home in Harlem, Netherlands. Using her job as a watchmaker and her father's shop as a cover, she built contacts. She helped resistance people, hiding them in their family home. Six people, among them both Jews and resistance workers, hid in this hiding place when the Gestapo, the secret German police, raided the house February 28th, 1944. Those in hiding remained undiscovered. In the meantime, however, the Gestapo arrested Corrie Ten Boom, her father, her brother, two sisters, and other family members. Corrie, her sister, and her dad, Casper, were all left in prison. The others were released. The Nazis deported Corrie and Betsy to a prison camp, Ravensbrück. Corey's dad got sick and died. Betsy died that following December. In mid-May of 1945, you know, it was the end of World War II in Europe. And Corey began a speaking career that lasted three decades. 
She began to speak of what had happened to their family, and despite the distractions of her work, Corey was still restless, and she desperately missed her sister. But Betsy had said, please tell people what you've learned here. She began telling people her story of God's forgiveness and of the need for people to forgive those who had harmed them. But in 1947, Corey was speaking in Munich. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her, and Corey froze. She knew this man, and she knew him well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one that had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. He said it, she said, it came back to me in a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, and the shame of walking naked past this man. Now he was pushing his hand out to hers and saying, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She says, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I, whose sins had again and ahead again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. He could erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking. The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing she said I ever had to do. The message that God forgives had a prior condition that we forgive those who injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will. She said, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You supply the feeling. She says, as I did that, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands, and then with healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you with all my heart, she said. She did what she did because she could trust her God. It wasn't how she felt. Corey couldn't get her father back. Corey couldn't get her sister back. Corey couldn't get her life back. Some of you this morning are in that same situation. You have been hurt so badly. And it only makes sense that the only thing you can do is to be bitter and angry about how you've been treated, how you've been mistreated. 
And God says, you don't have to bear that anymore. He says, let go of it. Let go of that in your life. Because it's what's best. Can you trust me to make things right? Can you trust me to deal with it? Can you trust me? You know, each of us have things that have radically changed our lives and they will never go back to the way they were. We would be nice if you, if you forgive and then it just resets the clock. It doesn't. Our lives will forever be changed because of what that person has been done, has done to us. Therefore, he says, let all bitterness, let all bitternesses, all kinds of bitterness, let go of those things. Can you trust God today to do the right thing with your hurts? Can you trust that God's command is right? Can you trust God to use your hurt for good in your life? You see, in our church voice, we say absolutely. But in our hearts, what we really need to know is our God. Because when we know our God, then we can trust our circumstances to Him. What you believe impacts how you will behave, and how you behave reveals what you believe. Today, let me ask you this. Would you let God handle your hurts for you? Have you been bruised? oppressed by bitterness. You can trust God. Kindness, compassion, and graciousness. It'll give you liberty. The path to freedom from past hurts.